All right. Good morning, everyone. We're going to start this Sunday school. Uh, welcome to Sunday school this morning. And uh, if you haven't taken, you can take an outline there at the door. Um, we're going to continue our journey through the seeing the story unfold as we saw in this class we're seeking to develop our skills in interpreting the bible and uh, biblical interpretation is the title of the class and for weeks we with the qualities of the word of god as you remember uh, and realizing that the bible has a storyline and in the past weeks we began to see how this storyline unfolds in the bible through several themes uh, the theme of the promise, the theme of covenant, the theme of kingdom, the theme of God's presence was last week, if you were there last week. And now we come to another theme, which is central to the Bible. And that theme is the priesthood. So the idea of priesthood is very important in the biblical storyline. Would you mind bumping that volume Yeah. No problem, brother. Is that okay now? Perfect. And uh, the idea of priesthood is very important in the biblical story because we know that we as human beings are sinful from Genesis. And we cannot come to God and worship God properly without intermediaries, people who mediate between us and God because of our sin. You see, sin pollutes the earth. And God's presence from uh, Genesis chapter 3, as we saw in previous week, withdraws. And so the concept of priesthood is very important even to frame properly the death of Christ on the cross. It matters. So we could say that the theme of priesthood is actually essential to understand the gospel, to properly frame. It's an essential piece of framework to the gospel itself to the work of Christ on the cross. It makes sense with that background. So if you have your um, note there, you see a definition of priesthood. Priesthood is uh, defined. Can anyone read us the definition there? The office of man's representatives before God, a priest is a consecrated mediator between God and God's people, serving at God's altar, sanctifying the holy place, bringing sacrifices and offerings to Thank you, brother. And uh, so we see here several elements in this definition. Uh, a priest in the Old Testament was a representative before God, consecrated by anointing to mediate between God and his people, Israel, and, and he needed to serve God and the altar, sanctifying, making holy, distinguishing between clean and unclean, and doing sacrifice to cover or atone for sin. So throughout this lecture, the biblical reference for us will be the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. So you keep that finger on the letter, but because we will camp mainly in that book, because that book deals with the priesthood theme uh, uh, throughout the book. But we, let's start from the beginning. And the first point in your outline, it's dealing with the priesthood in the Old Testament, particularly in the land of Canaan. Canaan and in the ancient societies, in the elder, ancient culture, understood what a priest was. Uh, there was, even in pagan culture surrounding Israel, there were these figures that needed to mediate between the divine and the human realms. They needed to coerce the gods to act and heal in this world so that there were, you know, plenty of religions where there were sacred places and, uh, and uh, common places, temples, rituals, festival, cleansing. So all of those details that we find in the Old Testament were actually common in the Middle East. Uh, so there was this understanding of priesthood. And you can think even of an example of this. For example, Jethro, who is a priest of Midian, the father-in-law of Moses. However, he's a pagan priest or Balaam who sacrifices to seek to curse uh, the people of Israel in the Old Testament. But even Egyptians, all the way to Joseph, had their own priestly castes and temples. 
So we have this idea, and uh, before we think, okay, this is uh, priesthood is just an ancient, irrelevant idea that today does not have anything to do with us. Let us realize that actually priesthood themes are present in every religion of the world today. But even among in our secular societies, we have plenty of priest temple motifs. As we look at, for example, uh, uh, you know, baseball match I went the other week to watch, and there's kind of really uh, the all the elements in a sports stadium or in a rock concert or in merchandises or in, in top models. So we live in a world of competing priests and temples and places of worship, just like uh, the Old Testament. We all are worshipers, friends. And so the question is, who do we worship? And that is the question of the, the Bible seeks to answer. So let us now dive into the scripture. Where do we see the first time the theme of priesthood? And you see there point A on the first uh, subpoint, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Can anyone read for us Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20? Genesis 14, verse 18 to 20. And Abram. Amen. So this is the first time in the Bible we find the word priest uh, appear in the, uh, in the Bible. Now, some have argued that already actually in the Garden of Eden, the function that Adam has before God is to attend a garden that is uh, typified like a temple. And so he's uh, attending that garden as a priest somehow. Or you think later, even the patriarchs, uh, the theme that comes out in the patriarchs is making animal sacrifices all the way to Abel, Noah, Abraham, Jacob. They acted as priests. There's, there's plenty of altar temple language in those instances. In fact, Abraham needed to be what? A source of blessing, which is a very priestly theme. But we come here in Genesis 14, and the first time that this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, he's called the king of righteousness, king of Salem. And that Salem is a, a brief letter for that city that later will become Jerusalem, where actually the temple will be established, as you know, further Old Testament history. He only appears once. He's never heard of again. And... Abraham, Abraham at this time has a strange meeting with him and they bless each other. They pray, they share a meal. And what does Abraham does? He gives a tithe, the tenth of everything to this mysterious priest and king. He's a king of Salem, but also a priest. Now, by giving the, uh, this, this tithe, what is implied is actually that Melchizedek, whoever he is, he's superior to Abraham. And he is a king of the future place long before a temple and a priesthood was established. Those things will be very crucial as we come to the book of Hebrews. So they, they are strangers to each other, but they share the same faith. And the text says he's a priest of the Most High God. He does not have any lineage. This will be very important when we come to uh, the priesthood in Israel. There's no lineage. Lineage was crucial for priesthood. And his office of priest is indefinite. It comes from forever and it goes on forever, we know from the Psalms. So he points this mysterious figure to a coming royal priest who has no genealogy, who comes before Aaron, before the priesthood of the uh, Israel, of the temple, which means Aaron's priesthood is actually inferior to this, who will surpass all priests, and was worthy of greater honor than the one Abraham gave to Melchizedek. Now, some want to see in Melchizedek actually Jesus before his incarnation. I think that is questionable. However, there is a way in which Melchizedek does point to Jesus. So, 
What does this mean for us? What do you think this means, this Melchizedek figure? Why is it so crucial that he comes, this mysterious figure? Anyone has some thoughts? The point for us is to realize that even from the beginning of the Bible, this figure points to Jesus Christ. That Melchizedek illustrates what Christ will be for us. A priest from the beginning of the Bible. We see that because of our sin, we do need a priest to mediate between us and God, to facilitate relationship with God's presence and His people. And that's what leads to establishing the priesthood in Israel. That is the second sub-point of the first point, priesthood in Canaan, for those who came later. So what do you think? We come to the covenant at Sinai. Why do you think there was the need to establish an entire system of priesthood, an entire sacrificial system? Anyone? What was the reason? Go ahead, brother. Absolutely, brother. Amen. So you see the priesthood, when God ratifies this covenant with Moses, it's a crucial tool to deal with sin, right? You, there's, there's this appearance of God on Mount Sinai, and, and no one must approach, approach the, the, the mountain or he's going to die. And so this sin in us and the fact that Israel now is chosen even before the priesthood is established. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Like God tells to Israel, that's who you are. So now what we need, however, is people who help us to enter into the holy presence of God. And this was so even before, again, uh, Aaron is chosen. Moses and Aaron already in Egypt before the Exodus acted as priests. They instructed God's people concerning the lamb blood that needed to be put on the doorposts to keep from the death that was coming on the firstborn. And this, I want to say, next week is Passover. And so as you go through this week, I want you to really meditate upon this theme of priesthood, even as you perhaps share the gospel with some of your family members or as you actually meditate on what Easter is. Priesthood is crucial. So what we see is that Priesthood starts with the sacrifice. The Old Testament tells us that life is in the blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Someone has to pay for each transgression. God is holy, Israel is chosen, and then we need this law, this ceremonial law that has elaborate rules for priests. Uh, they need to be consecrated, anointed, they have to have clean garments, uh, we're not going to read the whole passage, but there is listed for you. Exodus 28. Uh, there's a few items there. The, breast, the breastplate of righteousness that actually the priest needed to wear, wear with the names of Israel on his heart. The clean turban with the inscription, holy to the Lord. All this elaborate dressing did not just signify status, but it needed to protect the priest from death when he was entering in the holy place. So the priests were, you see in Exodus 28 and also throughout the Old Covenant, the altar where they needed to slaughter sacrifices of rams, lambs, even foods and burnt sacrifices, sprinkling the blood to atone and clean from sin. And obviously our brother pointed out that this did not bring the the complete removal of sin, did not bring the complete forgiveness of sin, which awaited the coming of the 
the ultimate sacrifice which is in Christ. They also needed to pronounce blessings. The Aaronic blessing in number six is pretty famous. They are agents of divine blessings. That, that is a priestly duty. They did, did, needed to distinguish between clean and unclean, holy, common, all the parts of the ceremonial law, particularly in Leviticus. But everything culminated in this particular day, the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, where the high priest needed to enter the Holy of Holies, and he needed to offer one bull for his own sin, and then leave this goat wandering in the wilderness, bearing the sins of God's people. And all, all this may seem a little bit, you know, details and irrelevant, but you will be surprised to find out how all these descriptions uh, in Exodus 28, they foreshadow Christ's sacrifice at the cross to the mi minute detail. Just to give you some examples, there's so many that I can bring to you, but think of the mercy seat. The mercy seat was called also an atonement cover. And it needed to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubims who are guarding the presence of God, you know, with a sword in the Garden of Eden. And they say, if you're coming, you're going to die. And, and, and then between that cover, there is the, the tables of the covenant, the revelation that God has given. And the high priest in the Day, the day of Atonement needed to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat that I can come to the presence of God through the shedding of the blood. So that the Israelite people who go through all these details needed to be brought to think about a coming um, further sacrifice. And another very small example, the golden bells and pomegranates that needed to be placed on the edges of the garments of the high priest. I know pomegranates is not a common fruit here. I come from Italy and we have pomegranates uh, right in front of our garden, but a beautiful red, bloody type of fruits. When you gather in your own, it's almost like a, you committed murder when you try to eat it. <laughs> and, uh, and that is pointing to, again, the sacrifice, but also the bells. The bells that he needed to shake so that God knows and sees that he is there. It doesn't kill him. So that you don't come into the presence of God unauthorized without both the shedding of blood, but also with the, you know, the proclamation of the bells. And there's many other details, but I encourage you to look at the Bible with this theme as you go through those details, not anymore as a boring, oh, this is Leviticus. It's like, no, there's so much to camp on. And so Aaron, Aaron now gets chosen. He's the first high priest Everyone needs to descend from him. He belongs to this tribe of Levi, and uh, from which comes all the entire book of Leviticus. And these are kind of pastoral assistants. The, like we kind of, we, uh, they, they are helping the high priest and the priests. They're part of the same tribe, but they cannot, again, go into the Holy of Holies. And they share no inheritance. They were assigned special cities. They were supported to tithe, and they assisted in the facilitating of the worship of God. First in the tabernacle, then when Israel gets, uh, as you saw in pre previous week, into establishing the land through the temple, and their goal was to serve God's presence, to offer sacrifice, to uh, draw near to God. However, they only stayed for a season. They, they had to offer sacrifices for their, own seas, for their own sins too, not just for those of the people. And they did these sacrifices repeatedly. And these sacrifices were not able to ultimately eradicate the guilt of sin. And so, in fact, in the Old Testament, after this is established, we see also failures in the priesthood, right? And uh, think of a family moving in a new home and they have painted the walls, everything looks nice, but then children come and after a few weeks they spill, destroy, and that doesn't look like it's supposed to. And that was, God placed the law, but then the priesthood failed. You think of particularly the case of Eli's son in, in Samuel, sexual immorality, eating sacrifices, uncleanness, 
giving in to idolatry throughout the Old Testament. You know the story in Judges of this Levite who has a mistress. And uh, so we see the failure to instruct the people. We have good example like Phineas. We have good priests like Zadok the priest, Abiathar. However, overall these priests have failed. In fact, this leads to judgment through exile. And through a brief season, the priesthood is established again, reinstated. You have Joshua, you have Zerubbabel, who are coming back to Jerusalem, and they are appointed as priests. But then you get to the New Testament. The description of the priesthood is very negative, completely corrupted. I mean, you got Annas and Caiaphas, who are the high priests, supposedly, and they are persecuting the Son of God. So that when Jesus comes into the scene, he's almost starting a battle of priesthoods between his priesthood and this priesthood that then leads ultimately after the death of Christ to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the end, complete end of the sacrificial system. And so <laughs> we see in the Old Testament this priesthood was weakened by sin and death. It was only provisional. It was for a season and a new and a better priest was needed. You come to the New Testament with this expectation. I like the line of this uh, singer, Andrew Peterson, who says, Our priests are cheats, our prophets are liars. We know that what the Lord requires, but we pile our sins higher and higher. Who can ascend a hill? You see, this whole problem of Israel, it is a sad truth that was to lead the people of Israel to realize that we need a better priest. We need a better priest. And that leads us ultimately to this brokenness should lead us to seek a better priesthood, a true reformation of the priesthood. And where does that happen? Second point in your outline, through the priesthood of Christ. Before I go on, any question on this first point? Let's move on through the magnificent priesthood of Christ. And we look here in your outline, sec uh, first uh, bullet, uh, uh, bullet point, the quality of this better high priest. Why is Christ better than all these priesthood that we, we talked about? First of all, because he remains forever. And this we come to the book of Hebrews. Can anyone read for us Hebrews 6.20? Hebrews 6.20s. Before Philemon, Hebrews, go ahead. So you see the connection with Melchizedek, first of all. And the point of this entire letter of Hebrews, the, we don't know who the author was. Some say it's uh, the Apostle Paul. It, it's focusing, however, on the priesthood theme throughout this letter. And the point of the letter is that Christ is a better high priest than the Old Testament priesthood. First of all, because he's eternal. Melchizedek is a priest forever. And so Hebrews 6.20 right there claims that Christ, like Melchizedek, as this eternal priesthood, without beginning, without genealogy, after the order of Melchizedek, which is before he supersedes, he, he, he crosses over, he skips Aaron, because Aaron came far later in, in the, the Old Testament, both in time past, which means we don't know his lineage, he comes forever, and in the future, he never dies. See, the Old Testament priesthood was only temporary. It was defective because priests needed to be constantly reappointed. Why? Because they die, right? And Christ instead is priest forever. He never dies. How do you think this affects us? That we, that we can actually approach God with confidence and knowing that he, he never dies. There's never a time that Christ is not a priest. This implies not only that he's the best unmatchable priest, but also because he's eternal, and it means this is divine. What the author of Hebrews is saying to these Jewish people, he is God on earth, on the, in the flesh. By virtue of the fact that he is God, he cannot die. He existed forever, and he remains forever. And therefore, he's the only one you need to run to. Unlike all the earthly priests, he never dies. And there's never a day that is unavailable to you to intercede and mediate between you and God. And let's go to that interception, Inter in, in, interceding, mediating. 
Intercession means to plead on behalf of another, intermediating between a holy God and a sinful people. And this is needed. Otherwise, God will destroy us because God is holy. And uh, Christ right now, he is acting as a priest at the right hand of the Father to pray and speak to the Father on your behalf, Christian. On the basis of what? Not on the basis of the fact that you are worthy of anything in yourself, but on the basis of the merit of Jesus himself, on the basis of his sacrifice. And that is taking place right now in this heavenly temple, of which the earthly temple was just a dim picture of it. So you see his wounds, they are still currently there, and they will still be there for eternity to come to witness, to plead for us. Let us now jump on chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 25. Can anyone read Hebrews 7, 25? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for us, for believers. Christ intercedes, you see that in the New Testament, for Peter, I prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. Even for his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He pleads to the Father so that the Spirit may be given to believers. And now he's in the heavenly throne of grace. He receives your prayer requests, Christ, as the only intercessor between you and God, the only mediator. Timothy says. You see, there's no other mediator. That's why something radical has happened with the New Testament, the New Covenant, other religions, or even some forms of Christianity. I come from Catholicism. There's a big deal of other mediators coming to God because somehow Christ is unavailable. Uh, they, this is denying the sufficiency of the mediation of Christ as a priest, his intercession. When we pray, we pray with, the, with this role. We know that Jesus is the one that actually makes our prayers acceptable to God. Look also, the third point in our outline, he represents man. Hebrews 2.17, can anyone read that? Hebrews 2.17. Why can Jesus intercede? Because he was a man. He was a man, like you and me. Made like his brothers in every respect. He sympathizes with our weakness. And he's a merciful high priest. Can someone read uh, Hebrews 4.15 on this same topic? See, that's the humanity of Christ right there. That is not only you know, high and lifted up, but he's also a man who went through what you went through without sin. And if we sin, we have in this high priest an advocate with the Father. But he's also able to, however, withhold access. You know, in the, in the Gospels, we see, if you deny me before man, I will deny you before the Father. That, that's priestly language right there. But again, he sympathizes with us as human. And that's how, why, because he was human. And therefore, he can be a perfect high priest. But not only that, look at our fourth sub-point. He represents God. Hebrews 7, 26. Can anyone read that? Amen. Holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners. See, those, true, those two truths are, 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 are equally true. Because of the fact that he has a divine nature. Yes, he has a human nature, but he also has a divine nature. He's sinless. He can't represent God because he was 
appointed by the Father for this. And I will read the Hebrews 5.5. 5. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this happened at the River Jordan. Christ baptized. He, he didn't need a baptism of his conversion. He didn't need a covering of sin. Why is he baptized? Because he's consecrated to start his priestly ministry. His three years of, it's kind of an ordination, that baptism of Jesus, you could say. So he, again, he's divine and therefore he's able to, the point of all of this, friends, is that we need to place our faith in this better high priest because he's fully God, fully man. He's interceding. He remains forever. That Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 1, 4, 14 says, the high priest of our confession, let us hold fast to our confession. The point is to lead you to faith, to trust, wholly rely upon this better high priest, to have boldness, confidence as you approach God. And this is revolutionary, I want to say. For people who are Jewish and are reading this letter, that you remove all the temple worship, that we just can worship anywhere in the spirit and truth? Is that so? All because of this better high priest who forgives sin, who was... I mean, I wonder if as Christians we have completely undermined this point that the implication brought by Jesus Christ, it is really to make... It is done. It is finished. It, it is sufficient. And that, it's because of His ultimate sacrifice, isn't it? The number one thing priests were to do was what? Offer sacrifices. And Christ is the greater high priest. He dies on the cross. He, John the Baptist, uh, he is himself is a son of a priest. He, he points to him, behold the Lamb of God. And his ministry, he heals, he cleanses the temple, he forgives sin, he intercedes. But the climax of all this, friends, is the sacrifice on the cross. As the Lamb of God dies to take away our sins. That is all priestly language. It is understood only in priestly terms. He offers himself resolutely on the cross for your sins. And through the payment of this death, we are brought back from the bondage of sin in a relationship with God that is right. This sacrifice offer turns away God's wrath against sin. And, and sin is no longer covered like in the Old Testament sacrifice. It's completely canceled. Because the blood of Christ is completely acceptable. Unlike the Old Testament, it's perfect sacrifice. Once and for all. That word in Hebrews, once and for all, is the key to everything. It's not repeated. Because he was obedient. He never dies. And, it, and God has placed his oath. Unchangeable. He doesn't have to repeat it. See, I, when, I, when I was Catholic, we had to go to Mass. And the sacrifice of Christ was repeated every time you took the Mass. Or every time you go to the priest to take a confession because he has to for, uh, give you the absolution even before you die. Make sure you get the absolution. I wanted to be a priest. I thought that's the way you fulfill the will of God for your life. No. The revolutionary nature of the new covenant is that unlike the Old Testament, now the access to the presence of God is free. The veil has been torn. Wide open. Because of this better sacrifice, this better high priest. This is the wonder of the cross, friends. One-time offering reconciles you with God. You are forgiven. Your blood, His blood covers you. And you have complete free access anywhere you are on this earth. Now, before we go on to this last point, applying the truth that we heard to us as Christians, and that will be the priesthood of Christians, for those who will enter later, priesthood of, priesthood of Canaan, priesthood of, of Christ. Now we go to the priesthood of, of Christians. Any questions, observation? You're tracking? That's great. Priesthood of Christians. Third point. We come to this concept, beautiful, wonderful concept of the New Testament that is called the universal priesthood of believers. We come to all these notions that we just heard and we say, okay, what, what, now Jesus has come. He's the better priest. What about us as believers? 
us as churches, how does Christ priesthood make a difference? That is the question. Christ's new priesthood has tremendous implications for us as believers. The separation between the priestly caste and the people with the new covenant is gone. In fact, the spiritual body of believers is described in the New Testament as the temple of the living God, replacing the physical temple, replacing the system of sacrifices. And therefore, everyone who is truly a member of this new covenant, better covenant, become a priest to one another. Everyone. We bear each other's burden. In that sense, we are acting as priests. We are called to present our body as what? As living sacrifices. And what is that if not priestly language? Acceptable to God. Romans 12, 1 for those who want a reference. We're called to serve God in a spiritual house, which means everything that we do in church is somehow priestly. Think about baptism, the Lord's Supper. Think about prayer. Think about the reading of the scripture. Think about the proclamation of the gospel. Think about the ways in which we minister to one another in this sense and even discipline in in the church all those things are related to a priestly understanding but the great change is that all those things are no longer relegated to one category of christians but to the entire community which means no believer has greater access to god than you (laughs) isn't it wonderful that we can have open access that is the, the the beauty of the new covenant that in the same way Christ is a priest king because we are united to Christ by faith and because of his sacrifice on our behalf we we embrace that by faith we can share his kingdom as priests and this was promised to Israel as a nation even before as I said the priest but let, let us see how it's fulfilled in the church first Peter 2 Verses 5 and 9. Anyone can read 1 Peter 2, verse 5 and Amen. Now, when Peter is writing those words that our brother just read, he's not writing to apostles or church leaders. He's writing to y'all, all the true believers that I'm writing this letter to in the churches. We are a holy priesthood, which means the coming of Christ does not mean that we're done away with priesthood. Oh, this was just a very old concept and it's done. No, no, it actually means more radically that every single true Christian, man or woman, acts and lives zealously as a priest. Which means it's an expansion of that priesthood of the Old Testament. And it's brought about by the New Covenant. In Christ, we're all priests. You don't have to have a pedigree or descent from a certain family. This is the greatest, cha- greatest change that, for example, the Protestant Reformation had brought to the scene through Martin Luther. This very point, the priesthood of all believers, he came to the scene and says, both clergy and layperson have equal right and responsibility before God. That, that is revolutionary. That all of our callings are set apart by God, no matter what it is, to honor God and serve Him. That we share in this priestly status. Think of a janitor who does his work. It is no, he's no worse spiritual condition than a preacher of the Word of God, before God. There's no more special class to mediate between us and God. Your pastor doesn't represent you before the heavenly throne. It is Christ. That you can read and apply your Bible for yourself. That, those were all ideas that Reformation brought in. He, you know, Luther said, all baptized Christians are priests. He said that in a medieval society where clergy, monks, priests, nuns, bishops, and cardinals were completely separated 
from the common people. And this caste completely depended from, from the people. And the people were just unworthy of the present. We, we, we got you. We, we will lead you to... <laughs> the problem is that even, however, in Luther's generation, some brought the teaching of the universal priesthood of all believers to an extreme. I mean, uh, if you go and see what happens in Wittenberg, unfortunately, which some say, okay, so that means that there's no more spiritual authority, that we don't need any more minister. That means that we can just, you know, do church as we like. Well, you know, I feel like in the past few centuries, that's exactly where the church has gone a little bit from one extreme of Catholicism to the other extreme, which sadly overreacts. And I especially think here in North America, it's, I look at, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, there was this idea of priestcraft within Protestant circles and just accusing anything, uh, any, any person who wanted to feel called to the ministry could go up and uh, even without calling, without qualification, or worse, there were, there's no need of teachers. There's no more need of teachers. So let's, let's get, get, let's see how that was a kind of an overreaction, uh, uh, over uh, uh, fulfillment of the priest of all, of all believers. We need, we do need, we still need ministers. We still need teachers of the word. And I want to say that, yes, there might be right point of, you know, pointing the, the, the problems and the issues where we go too much back to that uh, traditionalist, but there's also, there's also spiritual authority that God has established, which I wanted to say that. And before we go to the second sub-point of, of third point, which is the eternal priesthood of believers, just like Christ uh, is eternal in his priesthood, we are eternal in the future to come as priests. We, you know, we come to Christ, we uh, we enter into this and we will we are we are chosen as a holy priesthood as we read in peter for a purpose see the fact that christ saved us is more than a fire insurance to go to heaven i mean there's a there's a uh, there's a purpose to our being chosen to be we too have to make sacrifices we too have to share god's grace with others we too are to be zealous for good works which that, those are the privileges and responsibilities of being this holy priesthood in the new covenant. So because Christ's priesthood continues forever, we too as Christians will be priests forever. And this is throughout Revelation. I'm not going to read those, but you have a reference right there that keeps coming back, chapter 1, chapter 5, chapter 20, to this idea that we are and will be in eternity to come priesthood a holy nation and a priesthood for god that is god restoring what was lost at the fall that adam's call to priesthood had been broken by sin now we call, we go back to it restored and this also means sacrifice friends even by blood of the martyrs this means sacrifices through persecution that that is what revelation points to a, a, a dark uh, era that opens up where Christians are appearing before the heavenly throne with white robes and their blood as, you know, that spiritual sacrifice. And so what do we make of all this, friends, with this brief meditation on the theme of the priesthood? We must rejoice over the priesthood that we share by virtue of the fact that we are united to Jesus Christ. Rejoice over it meditate upon it especially this week that we're moving toward passover week easter week right that is everything tied to this concept of priesthood we're called to interact in the world as priests to advance god's spiritual kingdom and this does not end there but it continues to eternity that's what we are called to an eternity of worshiping god in this heavenly throne and temple as we serve god and we are his true temple and I know at times we might get discouraged in our spiritual walk, and especially in sanctification. And we see that, you know, we're not making progress. And we're like, the temptation there is like to hide away and to go back to this understanding, you know, I'm unworthy. I'm, you know, like, but, you know, the priesthood pushes you to go to actually the mediator, to go to him and to confess it and to, 
know that it has been covered and it leads you to a, a way of obedience. God will most certainly transform us as his holy priest. This is the calling that he has over you as a Christian. He designs us to be. And consider also what this entails. We need the blessing of the high priest Jesus Christ to endure through hardships. Because that is the, the last point of Revelation. This, uh, this in between now and glory, we shall go through many persecution if we want to indeed engage this calling. And so we need this blessing. We don't know what the future holds. I want you to know. America has, like never before, experienced hundreds of years of peace. And Christians have been able to prosper and do all sorts of things without any problem. But hardships may be on the rise. And so to meditate upon what actually gives you endurance is, is, is this pleading to the high priest. We may be facing uh, persecution, but our call remains that we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Through what? Through Christ. Not because of anything in us, not because of any of our works add anything to the perfect sacrifice that has been done, but because out of thankfulness for that sacrifice, we then serve in. So my hope is that this study, friends, stirred you up to read your Bible, meditate on the gospel with this theme in mind, the theme of priesthood, that you go, uh, um, so for, for those who came later, you go to those, you know, Old Testament books that no one wants to camp upon, but they're, they're, they, they seem so foreign. But once you get this, this tool of, of, you know, framework of a priesthood, then things start to make sense. And, and things start to actually become uh, quite close because obviously there's, there's also a distance. And, and, and so what we're trying to do with this class is trying to gap that distance so that you benefit in your Bible reading. But I also want to suggest some caution as you go in looking for this priestly theme in the Bible. Um, I see sometimes that, you know, we can find uh, things everywhere, you know, and, and we connect them to, to this idea of priesthood. Or I want to invite some caution in the sense that unless they are self-evident in the text, Unless the text of the, the scripture is, you know, pretty clear about this connection, uh, I invite you to actually, you know, double check. Because you will read literature, obviously, there's, there's a lot of things that have been written on, on this. And, you know, sometimes uh, we can come up with uh, some creative ideas. But I think it's important to uh, actually, yeah, make sure that it, it is validated from the text. And so let us now conclude with few points of applications from what we just saw as we look at the priesthood in Canaan in the cultural setting and Melchizedek uh, sacrificial system in Aaron then we went through the priesthood of Christ and we saw why Jesus is a better high priest and that should lead every Jewish person to to then put their faith in this better high priest because he's he remains forever whereas the Old Testament priest didn't he intercedes effectively on the throne of God, whereas the, the Old, Old Testament priest had to offer sins, a sacrifice for their own sins as well of the people. He represents man because he's fully man. But he also he represents God because he's fully God. And those two things are never found in any of these Old Testament priests. Therefore, put your trust in this ultimate sacrifice of this better high priest. And begin this new journey where you are, you are part of this. Because of your, the faith that you place in Jesus Christ, you become a priest. You, you're part of this universal priesthood of all believers, all throughout the ages, all throughout the earth. And that leads to eternity. First things that we see is that priesthood help us to find our identity in Christ. This theme of priesthood. Really, if you notice through this lecture, is that it really ignites us to really find our identity in Christ, especially when we're dealing with our sin. That identity is not in what you do, but in who you are in Christ. Because of this concept of your union with Christ, everything that Christ has becomes yours. As you place your faith, and one of these aspects is the priesthood of Christ. And therefore, this implies that through Christ, 
sacrifices, if we understand them as, you know, to you know, change anything in our relationship with God, are no longer necessary. That when you sin, you, you, your requirement is not to actually try to clean yourself up, but when you sin is to plead that same sacrifice that saved you. And that through that, experience forgiveness in your heart and move in a new heart obedience. They're no longer required. What we do for God does not add or subtract anything from who God is. And uh, can think of many, many passages. I could encourage you. Zechariah 3 in particular has been a blessing to me in this regard. Zechariah 3 speaks of Joshua, the high priest, who has filthy rags. And then he's given new wine shining garments and true sacrifice once again. And it's like, or I think of, yeah, uh, Pilgrim Progress, if you're familiar with the story, what happens at Salvation, where Pilgrim is led in front of that um, hill of Calvary. And, and there's this new movie, if you're interested, it's Pixar, but it depicts that moment. And he receives this new white shining garments. And it's like he's been asked by the angelic voice, you know, what has just happened? Do you realize what just happened to you? Like, you have now a new identity. You have new white shining garments. And that, that again, help us to find our identity in Christ. And those things are in him and we plead by faith. Secondly, priesthood helps us to represent God as we share the gospel and as we live our Christian life. Friends, especially as you go through this weekend, Passover week, Easter week, and you, you, wanna, you, you might go and see unbelieving family members. You remember, you are a priest in the sense that you teach others about the benefit of Christ's priesthood. And therefore, you must know the Word of God more and more and sh so that you may be able to share it better. So, so that your, your sharing of the gospel may be more informed and that you do your small part in this heavenly calling of seeing sinners reconcile with God. That's what happened when you share the gospel. These are true, true spiritual reality. Thirdly, priesthood help us to intercede for others. Why do we often meet for prayer? I know this morning prayer meeting was pretty, pretty low, only three or four, but uh, we gather to pray and, you know, even tonight for those who are coming, uh, we pray not just for our needs, however, not just because of our, our situation or the needs that we might have, but also for others. So expand your understanding of the prayer as actually a tool to bless others, like the priestly office entails, which means family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, your entire community. The priesthood of all believers even affects your view of discipleship. So that discipleship becomes really something that we, uh, you know, if the priest of all believers is true, then disciple making becomes universal. Every believer needs to, you know, teach and be taught and share and grow and become more like Christ. We're not the experts. Garrett and, and Jason are not the experts and you go to them and praise God for them as we see, like we don't want to overreact. But we also realize that we have a calling to, we ourselves, uh, to equip. You see, the task is to equip the saints to, so that the saints do the ministry. That is, again, part of the universal priesthood of all believers. That, that the pastor is not there to, uh, you know, be the one who knows things, but he's to equip other Christians so that they themselves, um, so that they themselves do the ministry. You see? Uh, lastly, priesthood helps us to live holy lives. To live holy lives. On the basis of this sacrifice, ultimate sacrifice of the high priest Jesus Christ. If we are to represent God, this requires us to live worthy of our office of priest for God. See, the two things are not in contradiction. It doesn't mean it's like, oh, yeah, I, I received this and now it doesn't matter what I do. Well, you have a calling as a priest, right? And that entails sanctification. That entails striving and battling against sin. Uh, even in approaching God as we worship, we do so in reverence, in fear, seeking to abide in the Word of God, to love and obey God. This testify 
by the way, disobedience testified to others that indeed, indeed God's power is in us. That this is not something that is manufactured by ourselves, but it is through this better high priest. And so, you know the hymn, we often sing it at church, Christ the true and better Adam, right? Beautiful lines. One line that is missing and should be added is that Christ the true and better priest. Christ the true and better Aaron, I don't know. There's a lot of things that we can camp as we reflect. Now, to conclude, if you're looking for some tools, some sources on how to see and better understand this theme of priesthood that we saw today, some of the things I share with you were based both with, uh, with this book by David Schrock. David Schrock is a pastor actually not far from here, uh, an Armar church, uh, Occoquan Bible Church, and, and he came here actually from last fall. There was, uh, for those who knew or were part of it, the Simeon Trust, and he actually was the leader of our group as we dived through the book of Revelation. And he definitely has a love for biblical theology. And he wrote this book, The Royal Priesthood and the Glory of God. The Royal Priesthood and the Glory of God by uh, David Schrock. And another one, otherwise, if you're interested in more kind of an overview, uh, I might get a little bit academic here and there, but it's Andrew Malone, God's Mediators, A Biblical Theology of Priesthood. Uh, Andrew Malone, Malone, uh, God's Mediators, A Biblical Theology of Priesthood. Now, one last thought before I close us in prayer. If you didn't sign up, remember to, don't forget to sign up in the sign of sheep, which should be right there at the door, should be. I'm not sure. This is what I was told to, to say. Let us uh, now conclude in prayer. Um, yes. I'd like to make one quick observation. Oh. Um, um, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus is from the order of Melchizedek. And, if, uh, and I find it interesting that whenever Melchizedek blessed Abraham, he blessed him with bread and wine. Mm. And so, um, and that was the very last thing that Jesus did was to say that the bread and wine represented him. Amen. So, Amen, absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out. And as I said, there's a lot of things we could say. We have just limited time, but definitely... You know, the Lord's Supper, I made a brief mention, but definitely the Lord's Supper is the climax of this, uh, in the inauguration of this new covenant and this better priesthood, you could say, uh, which happens every time we remember it. So thank you for pointing that out. Anyone else has any thoughts or observation before we close in prayer? Feel free to share questions. Let us pray. I'll be here for more if you want to just talk me individually oh lord we thank you so much for just uh, as we approach this week of easter passover week as we meditate lord um, and people around this world are brought to think about why why is there such a week why is it su such a big deal i do pray that lord you will actually help us ourselves to be aware of the beauty of uh, this priesthood throughout the Bible and how time and time again you point us towards these truths even to the minutest details Lord all the way to to the glorious redemption that you provide for us at the cross that whether people were born before the cross or after the cross all they needed to do was to put their faith in whatever elements that was pointing to that ultimate sacrifice, to that ultimate better High Priest, Jesus Christ. And as we said, Lord, help us to live in awareness of that, in our battle with sin, in awareness of that as we share the gospel even this coming week with people who might be family members, but they're not members of the family of God. And also to pray for one another, Lord, to intercede for one another. And to, Lord, ultimately live lives worthy of this high calling that you have, not just upon ministers, but upon everyone, to live worthy of the calling we have received, Lord. And we do this, Lord, not because of a strength of our own, but because of what you have done for us. And we thank you. For eternity, we will thank you and worship you and serve you and minister just what we have but Lord we, we put our crown at your feet realizing anything we have is only because of your grace 
So be with us now, be with the preaching of the word this morning as pastor will preach to us and help us to have attentive ear, Lord, and be with us, Lord, for the remainder of this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone.